Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenas. Pleased as punch to have you here with me yet again. Hope you are having a nice start to your summer. I am very excited to be talking today to award-winning and best-selling author Blaine Hardin. He is a longtime foreign correspondent who worked for the Washington Post from Africa, Eastern Europe, and Northeast Asia. He was also a national correspondent for the New York Times, a contributor to The Economist, and has reported for PBS Frontline. Among other accomplishments, he has written three acclaimed books about North Korea. His latest book is called Murder at the Mission, a frontier killing, its legacy of lies, and the taking of the American West. Welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's a it's a great to be here. Thanks. Yes. So, when do you first remember hearing about the murders at the Whitman Mission? I was a kid in in elementary school in Moses Lake, Washington, which is in eastern Washington, a couple hours drive north of the place where the killing took place, outside Walla Walla. And uh, we were all asked to perform in a play about Marcus and Narcissa Whitman and how they were killed by nasty Indians. And in the play, uh, Marcus and Narcissa were heroes. And uh, the Indians were sneaky. And uh, before he got killed, uh, Marcus uh, went to Washington and saved the Pacific Northwest from a British Catholic plot to take it away from America. That's a story that I learned uh, that was sort of sanctified by the state of Washington. uh, And that was in the 1960s. And that's my first memory of the story. This was in textbooks, too, right? It was in textbooks. Um, it had been really the, the great story of the making of the Pacific Northwest 
since about 18, the late 1870s when it was made up. Was it pretty impactful on you when you were younger? Well, that's the thing about uh, learning uh, things in school when you're a little kid is you're excited by the story. And because your teachers tell you it's true, you believe it. And so I believed it. And it wasn't until, you know, 50 years later that I started to examine the story and, and understand that, that what they taught me was uh, ridiculous nonsense and that they should have known it was ridiculous nonsense because 60 years before I learned it, it had been debunked in a very scholarly way by uh, a professor at Yale and, uh, and by other scholars. But the myth continued to be perpetuated. The myth continued to be perpetuated in the Pacific Northwest because it served several purposes. It, it made the people who lived in the, the white people who lived in the Pacific Northwest, it gave them a sort of heroic origin story. And it, made, it sort of made them uh, actors, uh, champions, and beneficiaries of, of the greatness of Manifest Destiny. So that's one of the reasons the story endured. And it also was a way to avoid really looking at what happened to Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest. Of course, what happened to them is that all their land was taken away in an aggressive and sometimes violent way. With, with a lot of uh, racist uh, trash talking about Indians that perpetuated uh, into my childhood. Uh, and if you had this story about a heroic missionary who uh, saved the Pacific Northwest from a foreign plot and then died at the hand of Indians, then you didn't have to think so seriously about what happened when white settlers came to the Pacific Northwest and took all the land of the people who lived there. It was a way of looking past the truth and making yourself feel good about yourself while doing so. And I think it's, 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 it's in human nature to find stories that make you and your forebears look good. So I'd love it if we could talk about the Cayuse people. What part of the Pacific Northwest did they live in do they live in? And what were their interactions with white people before the Whitmans came along? The Cayuse were a very interesting tribe, a small one that punched way above their weight in terms of military and societal power. They're a small tribe, never more than maybe a thousand, maybe 1,200 people at their peak. Uh, they lived in and around the Columbia Plateau, uh, not far from present-day Walla Walla, on the border between northeast uh, Oregon and southeast Washington State. Uh, their land straddled the Columbia River and the Walla Walla River and the Umatilla River. And the way they, they made their living was with horses. They were uh, the first tribe in the Columbia Plateau to go south and bring back large numbers of horses, which they became expert riders and breeders of, selling them to their um, closely affiliated and much larger tribe, the Nez Perce. And, and, then, and then using the horses for trading, 
for uh, raiding other tribes, uh, for slaving. Uh, they went. They went all the way into the Midwest to get buffalo. Uh, they went to the coast to trade for stuff that came from on ships that were arriving, and they were also early adopters of other technology. I mean, the horse was a new technology for for the tribes uh, in North America, and the, the, the Cayuse were early adopters. But they were also ad- early adopters of guns, cooking uh, pots, uh, blankets, and to get to the, the the missionaries is they were also early adopters of of other people's religions, which they saw as a possible adjunct uh, or addition to their power, and and which they thought might prepare them for what they knew was going to be an inevitable and overwhelming uh, rush of of white settlers into the area. So they invited Marcus and Narcissa Whitman to live on their traditional land. And so that they could learn about their white God in, in hopes that it might give them uh, an additional piece of uh, weaponry uh, to fight against their fellow tribes and against the coming white people. So, yeah, speaking of the Whitmans, would you talk a bit about Marcus and Narcissa Whitman, their decision to come west, specifically to the Walla Walla River? Yes. They came from upstate New York. They came from a part of New York that was known at the time uh, as the Burned Over area, the Burned Over region, Burned Over district. Uh, And they came of age in the 1820s, 1830s, when uh, there was this incredible wave of, of, of Christian evangelism in the United States. It was called the Second Great Awakening. And it began at the end of the 18th century uh, when, oh, maybe one or two percent, one or two out of every 10 Americans went to church regularly. By the late 1830s, when they came west, about eight out of 10 Americans went to church regularly. And there was this uh, great evangelizing spirit in the country supported by church donations that sent missionaries around the world and across North America to uh, convert uh, and save uh, what they called the heathen. And um, Marcus Whitman, who was a medical doctor, and Narcissa Whitman, who was a, a very pious, church-going young woman, they were um, sort of swept away on a current of romantic idealism about uh, going and, and, and converting the heathen. And in doing so, uh, saving themselves and, and preserving a place for themselves in heaven. They were very ethnocentric in the sense that they had no interest in the people they were converting other than to make them Christians as they defined Christianity. What, what denomination did they belong to? They were Presbyterian. Uh, which uh, that was the uh, denomination that dom- do- dominated their area in, in upstate New York. Uh, they, but they also worked with Congregationalists, and they they went they went west with the approval and with the financing of of a Boston ma- a Boston based uh, missionary organization that basically was the primary sponsor of missionaries around the world, 
and it was they worked for and at the pleasure of this missionary organization in Boston. And on their way west, they traveled with a man named Henry Spaulding, correct? Right. Um, Spaulding is uh, is is really the the dark hero of the story. He he was a uh, like Narcissa and Marcus Whitman. He was a uh, person born in the burned over area, a convert to uh, uh, an ev- evangelistic Calvinist version of Christianity. And he was also an ordained minister, which Marcus Whitman wasn't. And the, the backstory between Spalding and Narcissa Whitman is that they grew up in the same small town, Plattsburgh or uh, New York, and they uh, went to the same sort of junior college together. Narcissa was from a relatively affluent family. Uh, she had nice clothes and, uh, and a nice home to go t- home to. Spalding was a, 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 the bastard son of, of, a, of a mother who was also born out of wedlock. He had very little money. He had uh, a really, really sketchy education. But he, he managed, because he was hardworking, he managed to go to this uh, junior college there in the town. And he met Narcissa, who had a beautiful singing voice and by, me- by many reports was, was physically very attractive. And he fell for her and proposed marriage. And uh, she told him, no way, no way at all. He, uh, she rejected him. And then about five years later, it turns out that uh, they traveled west together in the same group of wagons all the way to Oregon. Narcissa had by that time married Dr. Whitman, and Spalding had, had uh, found himself a wife named Eliza. Uh, and, but Spalding never forgot and never forgave Narcissa or for that matter, Dr. Whitman, for his, his embarrassment and his rejection when he was younger. And so he tormented them during many of the years that they were out in the Pacific Northwest. They arrived in 1836, and, and the Whitmans were killed in 1847, 11 years later. And during that time, Spalding was basically a thorn in their side. Uh, Narcissa wrote a letter to her father saying, we never should have come west with this guy because he's caused us nothing but pain and heartache. But after they were killed uh, in the in the Whitman massacre, which we'll discuss in a minute, Spalding uh, decided to turn the people that he had tormented into iconic Western heroes. He made up a story the story that Marcus Marcus Whitman saved the Pacific Northwest, and then he sold that story to the entire country uh, by taking it to the U.S. Uh, Capitol and getting Congress to reprint it. Uh, and once it was reprinted, it became a you know original source document, and newspapers and magazines and the intelligentsia, the establishment in America, swallowed the story, and it became for several decades the official history of how the Pacific Northwest became the part of the United States. And it was all made up by Henry Spaulding, uh, the man who had been rejected by Narcissa. So when the Whitmans first arrived and built the mission, things went well with the Cayuse, at least for the first year or two. They did. 
Christianity had sort of percolated out across the, the plains and into the Pacific Northwest in, in several ways. Some Iroquois Indians from New York who had been pushed out of their land, they, they found their way west. Some Catholic uh, traders who worked for the Hudson's Bay Company and other fur trading outfits had passed on bits and pieces of Christianity. And so when the Whitmans arrived and started holding services uh, just outside of Walla Walla at the mission they built there, they were surprised that the uh, Cayuse were interested and seemed to actually have some idea of what was going on in a, in a, in a, in a church service. And so they felt that they were making great progress. Uh, neither uh, Narcissa nor Marcus really learned to speak uh, the language that the Cayuse spoke, which was Nez Perce language at that point. But they believed that they were making progress. In fact, they weren't. The Cayuse were hoping that having these uh, representative of a white man's God would give them some supernatural edge. But as the years went by, they saw nothing uh, of real benefit from having these missionaries squat on their land and refuse to pay rent and also refuse to leave when they were told to go. So the blood between the uh, Cayuse and the missionaries became increasingly bad over the years. And it was it, it made much worse by the constant arrival of more white people which kept making the Cayuse and all the tribes on the Columbia Plateau more nervous. And along with white people came white people's diseases. There, there had been a, several waves of, of catastrophic infections of, from smallpox, from malaria, and from measles. And uh, in some, they wiped out between 80 and 95% of all the Native Americans living in the Pacific Northwest before and in the very first years of, of white settlement. Uh, so the Cayuse, along with virtually every other Indian tribe, was edgy, uh, angry, suspicious. And that's the kind of relationship uh, that the missionaries had with the Cayuse. So the Cayuse treated Dr. Whitman as they would a tribal medicine man. That's right. That's right. And they watched with concern as Whitman treated both the Cayuse and the whites for the same disease. And the treatments appeared to the Cayuse to be working on the whites, but not so much on the Cayuse. Right particularly with measles. You know, measles is still uh, among the most infectious viruses known to man. But measles was not completely unfamiliar to the uh, biology of, of, of white people. They, they, they'd lived with it and been around it for, it was a European disease. Uh, so when it, it arrived in the Pacific Northwest, you know, it cut a terrible swath through the population moving very quickly. White people would get sick and get miserable and usually recover. Um, Indians would get sick and die, overwhelmingly, especially children. And the Cayuse leadership saw this, and they saw that, that uh, Whitman was treating his patients the same, uh, by bleeding them, that was his, one of his major techniques, 
and those who were bled, who are white, seem to recover, and those who are bled, who are Indians, seem to die. And so they, they concluded that Whitman was, you know, either a total idiot and incompetent, or was actually trying to kill the the Indians. Uh, in any case, they had a long tradition that Whitman knew about that he actually had written about at some length that said failed medicine men who worked uh, among the Cayuse, they have to be really, really good or they have to be quick on their feet and get out of town because otherwise they'll be killed. And that's what happened to him. He was actually warned multiple times by the Cayuse elders and by other knowledgeable white people, including the head of the of the Hudson's Bay Company for the Pacific Northwest, uh, John McLaughlin, to get out of there at least for a few years and let things calm down. But he was a stubborn person who refused to move. Um, by the time Whitman was killed in 1847, he and his wife had basically lost interest in their missionary. Uh, original missionary goals, which was to bring religion to the Cayuse and, uh, you know, baptize them and convert them. Instead, they were, she had become a teacher of white orphan uh, kids whose parents had died on the Oregon Trail or uh, once they arrived in Oregon. And he had become sort of a real estate developer, trying to get land from the federal government and welcoming these increasing numbers of of missionaries of of settlers who arrived every year so they they started coming at like 200 a year and then 400 a year then 600 a year and then 2000 a year as the indians just freaked out that they were becoming a minority in their own land we'll be back in a moment <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. 
We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. A lot of the tension between the Whitmans and the Cayuse had to do with personal space. Uh, members of the Cayuse, you, you write, as, as part of their culture, didn't believe so much in personal space. And especially in this case, as they believed that the land that the Whitmans were on was theirs. So members of the tribe would, would walk into the Whitman house, uh, help themselves to food, and Narcissa complained about this. She complained that they smelled, etc. And this increased her indifference towards the Cayuse as a whole. I mean, she, she tried not to interact with them at all. I think that was part of it. You know, she she grew up in a pretty comfortable, highly social, rather privileged background in New York. Her father was a judge, a landowner, and a business person. Her mother was a very active and highly respected uh, organizer in, in 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 the Presbyterian Church. So Narcissa was happiest when she could go into a church on Sunday, sing with her beautiful, pure soprano voice, maybe organize uh, uh, some sort of church meeting, and then go home to a nice supper. If you come to the Pacific Northwest and live on Cayuse land uh, that they have given you, it, it would behoove someone to sort of change their expectations about what life would be like. But she really didn't. Uh, she didn't learn the language. She didn't understand what the Cayuse thought or how they thought or what their religious values and beliefs were other than Christianity. The ethnocentrism was almost complete, where she just basically summed up the uh, their entirety as, as with one word. They were heathens. And also, when she arrived in the Pacific Northwest in, in 1836, she was uh, nearing 30 and she was pregnant for the first time in her life. And she gave birth to a healthy, by all accounts, vivacious young daughter who was a joy uh, of their lives and really gave Nar Narcissa a reason to live. And the, the birth it was actually celebrated by the Cayuse uh, uh, because it was, it was the first white child born to settlers uh, in, in that part of the country. And so the, the, the daughter, Clarissa, was a uniting element and a reason for joy, but she drowned in the river one Sunday afternoon when Marcus and Narcissa were busy reading. Uh, and after that, Narcissa, understandably, was incredibly depressed, and she sort of withdrew from her missionary goals and became a rather depressed, isolated person who should have left, who should have gone back to upstate New York and started over, but she didn't leave. There is some suggestion, you write, 
that to prevent the Cayuse from foraging through their vegetable gardens, and again, helping themselves to their food, either the Whitmans or, or someone on the property put poison on the food. I, I think it might have been a melon patch specifically, and it was meant to be a deterrent, right? There were some rumors that that had happened. I, the evidence of that is pretty sketchy. But in any case, the Cayuse believed it. They believed that Marcus Whitman was poisoning them, and it was part of a plot to take their land. And they, they blamed Narcissa as well. And they also blamed Henry Spaulding uh, as being a co-conspirator in this effort to poison the Indians and take their land. And uh, my personal belief is that I don't think that the Whitmans or the uh, or Spalding they weren't murderers. I mean, they 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 weren't killing Indians on purpose. Um, it was uh, their ethnocentrism, their 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 cultural blinders uh, that were the, uh, the the killing ingredient for for, for them. I don't think that they tr- intentionally tried to poison the Indians. The evidence of that is not strong, but in any case, the the Indians did believe it. And it was uh, well known uh, 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 among tribe members that there was something like that going on. And to add fuel to the fire, an emigrant from Maine named Joe Lewis arrived to the mission, and he began spreading rumors, stirring the pot. Joe Lewis was the primary uh, fomenter of trouble. But but as I said, the, the, you know everything was already ready to go up in flames because there was so much anger, and in the in the in the weeks and days before the massacre occur, occurred in late November of 1847, about half of the Cayuse tribe died from measles, uh, and even a higher percentage of children, and so the, the Cayuse men. They were just crazy with fear, looking for a scapegoat. And in walked Joe Lewis, this, this, um, this guy who was of mixed Indian and white blood who'd come from Maine and who, who had learned lots of stories about white perfidy uh, across the United States. And he arrived and, and, and he, he sort of uh, helped uh, put a match to this very, very volatile, flammable situation. So you write in your book that on November 29th, a cold and foggy Monday, several Cayuse men called on Whitman after lunchtime. They asked for medicine. Can you walk us through what happened next? What happened was that uh, Whitman uh, invited a couple of those people into his kitchen to discuss the, the situation with measles. And um, while they were having this conversation, the reports were that uh, one of the, um, the braves, one of the, the fighters, a uh, prominent guy named Tomahawks, he walked around behind uh, Whitman and buried a, a tomahawk in his skull. Uh, Whitman fell to the ground. Then he was shot in the neck. And then later he was dragged outside and um, 
tomahawk some more and 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 basically chopped up. Uh, Narcissa at the same time was in the house in another room, and she was shot. Uh, tricked to come outside saying all was clear. And once she got outside, she was also shot, tomahawked, and chopped to pieces as well. Eleven other white people, all of them men, were killed. They killed no woman except for Narcissa. And it was very clear that they wanted to kill Narcissa. Uh, and all of this happened on that one day, and then everybody else in the mission, and there were about 40 people, many young students who were sort of orphan students of Narcissa at the mission, and then other people who'd arrived uh, on the Oregon Trail, they were taken hostage, and then began a a hostage negotiation that, that took several weeks. So one of those hostages was Henry Spaulding's daughter, Eliza. How did word get to Spaulding about what had happened, and how did he react? The Spaulding story in the days after the massacre, I think, is the most interesting and dramatic uh, and deeply human part of, of the book. So, as you said, Spaulding's daughter, who was, I think, about 12, Eliza was there, and uh, she was studying uh, uh, with the help of Narcissa, learning you know, to read and, and stuff like that. And two days after the massacre, and the, the news of the massacre had not yet spread, uh, Spaulding was in the area, and he, w- he wanted to ride over to the mission and see how his daughter was doing, if she had uh, gotten measles, because he knew it was in the area, if she had survived. He just wanted to see his daughter. So on just outside of the mission, he ran into a Catholic priest, Father Brule, and Brule had just been at the mission where he'd seen all the bodies that had been created by this mass killing two days earlier. Brule had helped bury those bodies. He'd, he'd tried to calm down the Indians, and he had left, in fact, to try to find Spalding to warn him that the Indians wanted to kill him too. Uh, he was the very much at the top of their hit list for perfidious um, missionaries that needed to be killed. So Brule reached out uh, uh, and, and actually held Spalding's hand and told him what had happened to the Whitmans and told him that his daughter was safe. She was a hostage, but she was safe. And he told Spalding to turn around on his horse and ride like hell out of there because the Indians were going to kill him. And Spaulding did as he was advised by this priest, rode east to his mission, which was uh, a couple days ride to the east, uh, uh, a place called Lapway, which is now in Idaho. And he got away. But what's really interesting about that encounter with the Roman Catholic priest is that Spalding hated Roman Catholics. He uh, had been educated in New York and in, in, in and around Cleveland, Ohio, in a tradition of real, real hatred of Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics during those years were coming into the country in extraordinary numbers, and there was a real fear by Protestants that these papists, these people who reported to a, a commander in Rome, were going to ruin America. And Spalding was a, you know, a champion of that belief. And yet, because he had 
run into Brule, he was not dead. He owed his life to the compassion and, and bravery of this Catholic priest. And this was something that really drove Spalding crazy the rest of his life. And the way he dealt with it, which is basically the, the second half of the book, the way Spalding dealt with owing his life to uh, a representative of a church that he hated was to lie about it. He very quickly, within six months, was saying that Brule had been a organizer of the killing at the Whitman mission, and that there was blood on his hands, literally blood on his hands while he was baptizing the Indians who had just killed the Whitmans. There was blood everywhere, and it was all because the Catholics and the British were so sneaky. This was the story that he made up over the course of the next 20 years and sold to the U.S. Congress and to the New York Times and the Ladies' Home Journal and virtually every history book written in the United States about the Pacific Northwest between 1880 and 1905. And as part of that interaction with the Catholic priest, you write that a Cayuse warrior named Edward, who was the son of, of Chief Telokite, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Telokite had been, been involved in the murders, um, this warrior named Edward had, had been dispatched to kill Spalding. And the priest had diffused the situation at least long enough for Spalding to make his escape. Right. Yeah. Bruyer was a very interesting figure. He was uh, educated, born and educated in, in eastern Canada in, in, in and around uh, I think it was Toronto, maybe Montreal. But he had grown up in sort of a, uh, the Jesuit tradition of, you know, learning to speak Greek and Latin and understand sort of, he was a broadly educated, sophisticated guy with a good mind and a real ability to adapt to his circumstances. And so after he'd stumbled upon this killing at the mission, and he was allowed to um, bury the bodies, he heard that uh, Spalding would be next. And when he left the mission to try to find Spalding, the Cayuse sent along Tilokite's son uh, to, to keep an eye on him, and if he happened to see Spalding, to kill him. Uh, Spalding persuaded uh, Edward to give Spalding a break and think about it. Maybe he shouldn't kill him right away or something like that. And, 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 and Edward said, well, uh, I got to go talk to my, my, my chiefs about this. And so he rode back a, a couple of miles to, for a discussion. And it was in that window while he was checking out what he should do, uh, that, uh, Brulee told Spalding to, to beat it. And Spalding managed to ride away before uh, a hunting party came after him. Spalding was a poor horse rider. Uh, he had, a couple of days before this had happened, he had fallen off his horse and uh, sort of screwed up his knee. So he, he wasn't a particularly speedy 
uh, missionary as he fled east, but he was a knowledgeable guy who'd made the journey between Walla Walla and, and Idaho hundreds of times in the previous years. So he really knew how to uh, find his way, and he was quite lucky to get there. Uh, even though he lost his horse, and he ended up walking a lot of the way uh, without any boots. But he did manage to make it back to um, the Nez Perce country, where he was relatively safe. So it fell partly to the Hudson's Bay Company, the British fur traders who had been in that area uh, for, for a long time, to try and negotiate an end to all of this, right? Right. The, 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 the killing of the missionaries and 11 other white people was, it's, it, quickly became call, it, it quickly became infamous as the Whitman Massacre. Nothing quite so horrible for white people had occurred in the Pacific Northwest in the known history of the region. There were lots of white settlers by then, um, several thousand, living in the Willamette Valley over in western Washington, Western Oregon, on the western side of the Cascades. It took it took a while before news of the massacre reached those white people, but as soon as they heard, they wanted to organize a party to go and kill Indians in large numbers. The the Hudson's Bay Company, which was a, a chartered British company, which had been there in the region uh, trading for furs. Uh, and working with all the tribes rather success, successfully and profitably, when it received, it learned that the Whitmans had been killed along with these other people. It knew that this was going to be a, a disaster that potentially could wreck their business and quickly turn this part of the country into a territory of the United States. When when the when the murder occurred, the British and the United States had a treaty of sort of shared ownership of the Northwest. It was, the rules were rather vague, but they both lived there in relative uh, harmony. Uh, but the British Hudson's Bay Company, they could see it immediately as a disaster in the making. And so what the, the, the management of the Hudson's Bay Company did is they seized control. They sent out a, a party of armed men led by a trader who was extremely experienced in dealing with the tribes. And he, he went to the Cayuse and to the Nez Perce and said, well, I want you to surrender the hostages immediately and we'll give you some, some uh, guns and some blankets and some food as a trade. But unless you make this trade and you do it right away, white people are going to come from the Willamette Valley, and they'll probably also come at some point from Washington, D.C., by uh, the president of the United States, and they're going to kill you all. So please make a deal. And they did. The, the Cayuse and the Nez Perce and the other tribes agreed to give the hostages up. And by that time, they included uh, Henry Spaulding and his family and some other white people who lived among the Nez Perce, and they all got on a Hudson's Bay Company uh, boats, went uh, downstream on the Columbia, and survived. Uh, and the Hudson's Bay Company did manage by really excellent uh, management to save their business operation in the Northwest for another 10, 15 years. So even though the hostages were released, that didn't appease 
settlers entirely. They, they were still enraged. And there were now stories coming from the hostages that they had been mistreated, including one from a young woman named Lorinda Bewley. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, right? Yeah. Who, who shared stories of her captivity. Right. So there, there, there were, um, there, there was always in, in, in the American experience, uh, among native Americans, this incredible anger and, and desire for vengeance when the Indians who couldn't take being pushed around anymore started fighting back. And that's what happened with, 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 with the Cayuse. Uh, they, they killed, these these whites and then the, the the surviving whites who by that time outnumbered and outgunned the Indians they responded disproportionately and with great prejudice or they tried to and and, and that that's the story of uh, of the entire American West and it was always made worse when there was a white woman killed as Narcissa was or when there was a young white woman uh, sexually uh, molested as Lorinda Bewley was, or said she was. So the story of her being taken by a Cayuse chief and being uh, unutterably and unspeakably abused, as it was described in the newspapers at the time, it really really made uh, the blood boil among whites and fomented a desire for vengeance. And what happened is, at the same time as the uh, whites in the Willamette Valley uh, were, were were sort of eager for a war against the Indians, they weren't well prepared for it. They didn't have much money. They didn't have any military leadership, not much, not many arms. Um, and so, what they wanted to do was to use the provocation of this massacre as a news event that would get the U.S. government in Washington to finally make the Pacific Northwest an official territory of the United States, which is something that uh, President Polk at the time said he wanted to do. The whites in the Willamette Valley shrewdly saw this as a trigger, a pivotal uh, sort of a turning point, tipping point uh, that would finally force the the uh, the president of the United States and the U.S. Congress to stop dilly dallying and do so and make this decision to turn the Oregon country into a territory. So they sent back uh, a guy named Joe Meek, who was a, a trapper who'd known the, the the Whitmans. He went back to Washington, talked to President Polk, whose wife actually was his second cousin, and persuaded Polk and the U.S. Congress to do exactly what the people in the Willamette Valley wanted, which was to make the Pacific Northwest into a territory. And within a couple decades, then it became the states of Oregon, Washington, and and later Idaho. So what Whitman and his wife did, I mean, their, their big achievement was to get killed and create this tipping point that turned the Pacific Northwest into a part of the continental United States and completed the um, formation of a continental country. That's what uh, the Whitmans actually did by dying. Uh, and then, as I said, Spalding, uh, because he was a an angry, uh, Catholic-hating uh, resentful person uh, who had been dumped by Narcissa in his uh, fevered imagination, he came up with the story that Whitman had saved 
the Pacific Northwest before he died and then was actually killed for having done so. Uh, And that's the story that I ended up learning when I was a kid. We will return momentarily. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. And we're back again. So how was Whitman the savior of the Pacific Northwest. What was he supposed to have done that was so heroic? So the the story sort of, the, the story that Spalding uh, fabricated evolved over time. Um, but sort of the final version of the story is that Whitman was in 1841, doing his doctoring work, doing his missionary work, and that he was invited to dinner at a um, Hudson's Bay Company sort of party at Fort Walla Walla, not far from his mission. And while he was sitting at the table, 
he, uh, in Spalding's uh, fictitious version of history, he heard the Hudson's Bay Company people talk how, about how a large number of Roman Catholic Canadians had just arrived in the Pacific Northwest, and this would be the arrival that would change the complexion of the region, turning it into a part of Britain, and that the the British basically had won the country. That's what the discussion was at dinner, according to the story that Spalding made up. And then, according to the story that Spalding made up, uh, Whitman jumped up from the table, went to his horse, <laughs> got on the horse, and then rode to his wife, uh, who was a few miles away, and said, I must go to Washington. I must save the country. Don't worry about me. I'll be back, I hope. And he rode across the country with his horse through terrible winter snows and burst into the White House. And the president at the time, John Tyler, was there, along with the Secretary of State, Webster. And um, Whitman, according to the story that Spalding made up, uh, told uh, these important people that the British were coming. America had no time to lose. And we need reinforcements so Tyler gave him the reinforcements, and then uh, Whitman supposedly led a wagon train that came back to save the Pacific Northwest. And the and the the, the United States then never allowed Britain to take the Pacific Northwest. So that's the, that's the fake story, uh, and that's the one that everyone ended up believing until it was debunked. So in the aftermath of these murders the Cayuse were feeling tremendous pressure and they decided that the best course of action was basically to find five of their own, hand them over, and they hoped that doing this would put an end to the drama, right? Right. What, so uh, when, when Joe Meek, the emissary from the Willamette Valley, got to Washington, and Congress decided to make the Pacific Northwest a territory. Three things happened: is the uh, Polk dispatched a couple thousand men on horseback, the cavalry, to go to Oregon to sort things out, and then he also sent, uh, you know, a judge, uh, a prosecutor, and a governor out to the territory. And the the goal of 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 this of these high personages and this this these well armed people was to bring the Cayuses to justice and to make sure that nothing as terrible as the Whitman Massacre ever happened again. The, the, this cavalry unit actually rode across Cayuse country, and the, the, the tribal leaders saw you know, this big army, well-armed with all these horses, and, and they knew that they could not deal with them. And so they decided to sort of round up the usual suspects, so to speak. They, they found five people that they said were involved in the massacre, and they gave them to the Americans. And the Americans then took them on a boat down to Oregon City, which was the largest city in the Pacific Northwest at the time. It's now a suburb of Portland, where they were tried. And on the way down, uh, in one of the, uh, the, it's a quote that may be apocryphal, but it's attributed uh, fairly well to the, the memory of one of the people involved in the trial, is that Tilakite, who was the, uh, the, the most senior of the elders who were arrested uh, for their participation in the massacre, he said that 
they, they were sacrificial lambs, and he, you know, he and he and Telekite had also been a translator for many of the sermons that Marcus Whitman had delivered at, at his mission before he was killed, and Telekite had clearly been paying attention to the Christian message. And Telekite said that just as you know, your Christ had died to save uh, your people from 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 the devil, so we will go and die to save our people. And they did. They went down to uh, Oregon City, or they went they went west to Oregon City, and there they were tried, uh, convicted, and hanged in the the first really formal murder trial in the history of the Pacific Northwest. And a, and a mass gallows was built, and they were hanged simultaneously uh, one afternoon with a huge crowd, uh, maybe fifteen to thirty percent of all the people in the Pacific Northwest came to the hanging. And then they were buried on the edge of town. Uh, they were represented by a man named Captain Thomas Claiborne, uh, who, who was not a friend of, of Henry Spaulding uh, by any means. But part of the defense's strategy was to argue that the murders happened on Cayuse land, not American land, which meant that Cayuse law applied in this case. Right. This was a trial that had all the the rules and formalities uh procedures of of a, of a federal trial that you might even see today evidence uh a grand jury indictment uh you know the, the finding of a jury prosecutor all of that and so the defense strategy in the trial was to say that the murder occurred outside of the formal jurisdiction of the United States. It occurred before the uh, region had become a territory, and it was, in, uh, it was outside of the officially designated Indian country, which was to the south around Oklahoma. It was basically, it happened on the sovereign land of the Cayuse tribe. And as such, the laws that should apply there are not U.S. laws, but Cayuse traditional law which for centuries had sanctioned and practiced the execution of failed medicine men. Uh, this argument was made. It made a certain jurisdictional sense. But the judge in the case, who'd been appointed by President Polk, he said no. He, he realized that uh, the trial was an exercise in vengeance. And that if he were to uh, let these Indians live on the basis of a legal technicality, that his career as a politician, as a judge, as a man who would later become very, very rich in the American West, would probably end. So he, he threw out all their objections and quickly moved towards a conviction. You write that the jury didn't deliberate long. Uh, just over an hour before coming back with a guilty verdict. And of the five convicted men, three of them were terrified, not of being executed, which they expected, but of being hanged. And hanging was a really foreign idea for them. Right. They, 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 the, the Caius were a warlike people. They raided, they slaved, they murdered, they stabbed, they shot. And in return, when they lost, they were, they were stabbed and shot as well. 
but in in their cosmology of war, uh, nobody was ever hanged. They never hanged anybody, and they thought that it was completely foreign to all of their values to be hanged like a dog. They described it. They much wanted to be shot or to be knifed, and and they complained about the hanging bitterly until they were hanged. Joe Meek, who was responsible for administering the hangings. Um, oh, oh, by the way, his daughter had died, uh, right? So, so this was a little personal for his, him. His daughter was there at the mission when the massacre occurred. She was not killed, but she did have measles, and she later died. And uh, her, her body um, was found at the mission, and actually Joe Meek saw her body when he was heading east to report to Washington, D.C. what had happened. He went through the mission and saw several bodies, including, he said, the body of his daughter. And so when the Cayuse uh, Five were hanged, um, not all of them died the moment that they fell from the gallows when the trap door opened. So many of them sort of struggled at the end of their rope. Uh, and Tomahas among them, the one who uh, uh, allegedly struck the first blow. And Meek reports uh, in his in a biography written about him that he put his foot on that noose and tightened it up till Tomahas went quiet. So after the hangings, basically the floodgates opened, right, for settlers. Right. The the hangings uh, were the pivot point that made. Oregon a territory. Once it became a territory, there were laws passed for for land, for showing up, you got land. And then people began to show up in the tens and then the hundreds of thousands. And the uh, Native Americans, as elsewhere in the West, quickly became a small minority uh, in their homeland. So Whitman College is really well known in the Pacific Northwest. How did it get its name? How was it connected to all of this? And how has it fared amidst these changing views regarding the Whitman name? The Whitman story is very interesting. It was founded by one of the other uh, missionaries who came out with Whitman in the 1830s. And it founded about 15 years or so after the Whitman killing as a sort of memorial to Whitman and as a way to uh, have a a religious college in Eastern Oregon and Washington. It was just above the the border of Oregon in in, in Southeast Oregon, near Walla Walla. So the college was founded. It struggled mightily to find students and also to pay its bills. In the mid-1890s, this was after Spalding had made up the lie about Whitman saving the Pacific Northwest, The school was on the brink of bankruptcy. Its president had recently been fired and left town, and they had a new young president named Stephen Penrose, who had arrived from Philadelphia, had gone to Williams, was an upper-class Easterner uh, who didn't really know much about the history, particularly about the Native Americans of the Pacific Northwest. But he was a very smart, ambitious guy who wanted to save the college. He walked into the Whitman's uh, scruffy little library and found a book 
that rehash the the lie about Whitman saving the Northwest. And Penrose read that story and he had that this aha moment. He said, this is a story that will save the college. This is a story that will make everybody excited when they hear about it in pews across the East Coast. So he boiled that story down to its essence uh, that Whitman had been sort of the Christ of missionaries who had given his very blood so that the Pacific Northwest could live. And it was the least that a good Protestant living in Boston or New York or Philadelphia or Chicago, the least they could do was to give Whitman College some money so that Whitman would not have died in vain. Penrose, uh, with that simple, dramatic, heroic message of manifest destiny and Christian goodness, took that to Chicago, and then he took it around the country, and he raised the equivalence of tens of millions of dollars on the back of the lie, saved the college, and turned it into what it's now what it now is, which is probably the best private college in the Pacific Northwest and one of the top 40 in the United States. It really is a terrific small private college, and I spent a lot of time there in its library. But he ran with the lie, and even after it was debunked in 1900, he continued to run with it until he died about 35 years later. So one final question. Is this Whitman story now generally accepted as being debunked, or do some still teach it? I'm happy to report that the publication of my book last year coincided with a sea change in public understanding of this issue and in the way Whitman is recognized officially by the state of Washington. The state of Washington, in its wisdom, had chosen Whitman in the 1950s to be a representative of the finest in achievement by a settler uh, in the state and sent a statue of him back to Washington, D.C. to be honored in the Hall of Statuary at the U.S. Capitol. This occurred 50 years after the Whitman story was debunked as, as a ridiculous lie. But as I said at the beginning of our conversation, Whitman represented an ideal of, of uh, American settler ingenuity and courage and that ideal overcame any truthiness about what he actually did or didn't do. But last year, uh, when my book came out, the state legislature decided to remove Whitman from the, the Hall of Statuary in Washington and replace him uh, with the, uh, a statue of Billy Frank Jr., who was a uh, Native American activist who uh, demanded the fishing rights that were embodied in the various treaties that Indians had signed with whites in the 1900s, in the, in the, in the 1800s. And so Whitman's statue is being removed from Washington, D.C. It's also going to be removed from the, from the, from the uh, U.S., from the state capitol in Olympia. And at Whitman College, there's a statue of Whitman that is also going to be removed at some point. Uh, at the same time, Whitman College has um, tried to make amends for running with the lie about Whitman by offering uh, full scholarships to five tribal students from the Umatilla Reservation uh, where the Cayuse have been consigned for the past 100 and some years. So a great deal has changed in just the past year. 
Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this with us. So where can we direct listeners who want to learn more about you and your book? I have a website, blaineharden.com. And, you know, the, the, the book, it just came out in paperback uh, it, with a, um, a new epilogue that explains a lot of the things that I just mentioned, that uh, the story of Whitman has finally been digested and the truth is being absorbed by the, the higher-ups who run everything in the Pacific Northwest. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank you. It was a great interview. Again, I have been speaking to Blaine Harden. He is the author of Murder at the Mission, A Frontier Killing, Its Legacy of Lies, and The Taking of the American West. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.